Welcome to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. I'm your host, Tim Reed. And once again, I'm so excited to be here today. Welcome to the Firetime Podcast. Now, it is just crazy for me coming to the end of season eight of the podcast. It's, it's wild. It's surreal. This always happens to me at the end of every season that I'm just amazed at how much ground has been covered. And as I you know, kind of sit back and try to plan out what we're going to do each season, every time we record a Q&A episode, I try to record it as close to the release as possible. So that way we're able to really dive into questions that have been coming up in real time to the recent episodes. And man, today's going to be really, really fun. So just to lay out what we're going to do today. So I've had a really heavy travel schedule for the last, I mean, gosh, I mean, three, four months. And so today's episode is a compilation of the questions that I've gotten in my email inbox from people who listen to the podcast, folks who are signing up for Wi-Fi with questions about where their business needs help, and also as me and Grant have been out doing consulting events and speaking engagements for the last few months all across North America, the questions that we've been getting, I've distilled them down to the questions that I think most represent all the questions total that we've gotten. And so we're going to be diving into those. I've left names out to protect the names of the innocent, but I think it's going to be really, really special jumping in today. Now, since this is the end of season eight, what we're going to be doing for the summer is what we did in between the last two seasons where we will have rapid reaction episodes. So the podcast is now a weekly podcast going forward, but for the next two to three months until we get to season nine, we are going to be playing an audio article from the Firetime Magazine, and then I'm going to be jumping on to give you my rapid reaction to it. And this is honestly some of my favorite stuff to do in the podcast. I've heard from a lot of people, these are actually some of their favorite episodes, where I literally just listen to the article in real time, just like you, and then I jump right on the mic, and I just tell you everything that hit me as I listened to it, as I thought about it, and as I took notes. So these are going to be really, really fun. They're generally a little bit shorter in content. And so there's going to be plenty of content this summer to try to keep you inspired and just help you understand what to do next in your business. And when we come back for season nine in the fall, we always start the Tuesday after Labor Day and we have some heavy hitters lined up. I'm really excited for next season. It's going to be great. So with all that said, I'm going to jump out of the way. Let's get into the Q&A and I'll absolutely have some wrap up thoughts on the back end. All right. So jumping into the questions, we're going to start out with a question that has come up quite a bit as Grant and I have been on the speaking circuit here. And it's this, can you build out a job walk form for me? Now, as Grant and I do different events, a lot of the time we talk about how every company must have a centralized job walk form. I don't care if you're the estimator, you've been doing it for 30 years, you know everything, you've got to have a centralized form. Writing your notes on a blank piece of paper does not cut it. And the reason why is that when you write your notes on a piece of paper, there's always going to be things that you forget because there's a lot of stuff going through your head. When you build out a consistent job walk form that has the same questions, the same check marks, the same boxes every single time, you never forget 
what you're supposed to document. And I'll tell you that as long as you use a blank piece of paper, you will never train anyone to take your job, at least not to take it effectively. But if you can document out a standardized job walk form, again, with checklists, with boxes, with spaces to fill in the blank... I mean, this is something you can train to. This is something that makes your team better. And, uh, you know, gosh, me and Grant believe in it so wholeheartedly. So a lot of the time we speak, I'll, I'll, I'll offer to the group, you know, I'll make you one of these if you take me up on it. And uh, I've kind of gotten in trouble because I'm, I'm backlogged on these quite a bit. So literally right now, I'm going to tell you exactly what I do when I make these. So if you've been struggling with how to have a consistent job walk form, This is what you do. There's a million ways to do it, but I'm going to tell you how I do it. You go to jotform.com. You set up a free account and you build a digital form. So again, you'll want to put fields like customer name. You want to have drop down fields for product type. Is this a gas insert, a gas fireplace, a wood stove, a wood insert? You know, you'll want to have check boxes for which extra services will need to be provided. Check the box for chimney sweep. Check the box for electrician. Check the box for gas line. You'll want to have spaces to type in long form text. Why does this product solve this customer's particular problem? And everything in between. But what I love about JotForm is literally you can build one of these forms in, I mean... 10 minutes. It doesn't take that long. And then you can actually set the form up to automatically email a PDF to a series of email addresses. So what I like to do is this. I like to set the form up to immediately email a copy of the PDF to the estimator, to the installation manager, and to the salesperson. And here's the reason I like it. The salesperson instantly can look at their job and see what was done. Now on this form, you can also upload pictures to it, which is really nice. But they can instantly take a look at this form and they can see exactly what was done at the customer's house. The installation manager can look it over and see how good of a job is the estimator doing. Now maybe your estimator and installation manager are the same person. That's totally fine. But if they're separate... The installation manager can look at it and help train the estimator on how to take tighter notes. If you're training a new estimator, you know, copy your more tenured estimator on this form. But what I like the most is it builds a behavior where the form has to get done in real time because you see when it gets submitted. I really believe that every hour that goes by after you leave the job site that you do not document your job notes that job starts to get looser and looser and looser because I'm telling you, you just forget stuff. I've done this so many times. I believe this needs to be done at the customer's house. And, you know, sometimes I would, you know, drive around the corner so I'm not sitting like a creeper in their driveway for 20 minutes. But I'd drive around the corner. I'd fill the whole thing out before leaving. And doing this, I mean, I'm telling you, it sets you up for success because if you forgot anything, you can run right back around, take that last measurement, take that last picture, and the consistency of doing it the same way every single time before you leave is absolutely incredible. Consistency roots out problems. When you don't do it the same way, you'll never fix it. Consistency roots out problems, and truly, I just do it in in jot form. I mean, it's really, really easy. So if you have any questions on that, you're welcome to shoot me an email, but that is my advice. That's literally what I do is I create a free jot form account for the person that, you know, I'm helping with this project. I document the questions and the fields and everything using a combination of checkboxes, dropdowns, and text fields, 
and then I set it up to email those people. This way, you know, if you're getting these sent to you at midnight, you know that the estimator is not doing it when they're supposed to be doing it. You should see these coming in throughout the day. It's a great way to very quickly and very passively measure it. Hope that helps you. Okay, question number two, and man, this is a loaded one, so I'm going to try to make this quick because I want to get through all of these. How do you build a pay scale for salespeople? This is such an important question, and this came in a few months ago from um, a dealer on the East Coast, and I'm I'm passionate about this, and truly, I, I believe in various compensation plans for various personality types and maturity levels. So there's a couple of things that I would think about. I, I really believe that for a salesperson in our industry, and let's, let's, this is a retailer that's writing in. So let's talk about a, a retail position, not a builder rep or not a, uh, a sales rep for a distributor or a manufacturer. You know, I, I believe in initially a combination of base pay commission and a quarterly bonus. I really like that combination. And the reason why is you can choose how you weight these, but I like base pay, a monthly commission and a quarterly bonus. The, the base pay makes it to where obviously you can eat top ramen and, and uh, survive if you know, you don't sell that much, but you do not want that base to be too high for people starting out. You really want them to earn their keep. And, and I'll, I'll go into a little bit of, of nuance about this uh, after I finish this, this next part here, but you don't want that base to be too high. What you want to do is you want to reward the behavior that you want to see, which is sales. So I believe in a monthly commission. There's a lot of ways to do this. Um, I've had some times where the commission is fixed and that's fine, but I've had some success as well by having a lower commission until their sales cross a certain threshold for the month and then the commission accelerates. Like I've even doubled it for my salespeople. And that's been really effective because it protects the company where you're not paying out as much when their sales are lower, which is great because, you know, as a, as a business owner, you need to pay back that base salary and make sure that they're earning their keep. But it incentivizes the salesperson to try to cross this threshold. And once they've crossed it, you know, load it up. I mean, when you're in that double commission, like let's lock and load this thing. And, and, and I think that that's a really good thing to look at on a, a monthly basis. Finally, a quarterly bonus I think is really important because a quarterly bonus allows them to have a long-term target, right? So for, for salespeople, they should have a monthly sales goal, but, but I like the fact that they're looking a few months ahead and thinking a little bit strategically about, you know, how am I doing this month? Okay, last month was great. You know, this month is, is looking pretty good. So, you know, next month, as long as I can just hit my goal, I don't need to knock it out of the park. I can just hit my goal. I'm going to hit my bonus. I really like salespeople thinking long-term and the rhythm of every month, I've got a, a commission to go after. And especially if that commission swings above a certain sales threshold, you know, that's like kind of a monthly goal I'm going after. But I, I can go quarterly as well, right? My sales compounds. And I think that the quarterly bonus should be based on the sales for the quarter. So maybe it's a percentage of it. Maybe you offer a spiff if they sell X or a, a greater spiff if they sell Y. But again, every quarter I would do this. I, I don't like yearly bonuses. And the reason why is if you get three months into the year and tank, you might get unmotivated to sell more because you think I've already missed my bonus. I'm not going to hit it, right? Now, again, in our in our year, you might have a bad January, February, March. That doesn't 
really affect you because generally our, our fourth quarter is so strong. But still, I, I, I like a quarterly bonus a lot. My opinion as a business owner is that when it comes to yearly bonuses and things like that, I love to do that out of generosity rather than out of, well, I sold this so I get this. I love that for a monthly and a quarterly basis, but I, I'm not as big of a fan of it on a, on a yearly basis. So again, you'll need to figure out where those percentages are, but I would, I would advise if you're starting out, have a monthly base, a monthly commission, and a quarterly sales bonus. Now, that quarterly sales bonus is all or nothing. If you're off by $1, you don't get it. As bonus points, make that commission accelerate when they cross a certain sales threshold. I get that that can be tough for your bookkeeper, but man, it motivates really good behavior. Um, Oh, I promised I'd get back to this. Okay, so some salespeople operate better on a heavier commission and some salespeople operate better on a stronger base. I'll tell you uh, two very, very quick stories. I'm going to move on to the next question. I had a salesperson in my company that was on this combination of base plus commission plus bonus. And he had a lot of potential and, and I thought he was really good at what he did. Because he was really good at what he did, we moved him over to a full commission package zero base, 100% commission. And he thrived because he had proven that he could go out and get results every month. And what I told him is, is, you know, as he was looking to make more money and we were looking to grow him, I told him that, you know, as a business owner, everything's about risk reward that, that, you know, when you pay a base, the risk is for the company because you may not perform when you're in a full commission package. The risk is not on the company. So a company will pay more for performance if they don't have risk involved. And that's what I was telling him was like, it's up to you. You don't have to change your comp plan, but if you want to move to a commission, we can give you a higher commission because the company is not at risk when you don't perform. So I would say, you know, virtually any business owner will pay a premium for guaranteed performance. And it worked out really, really good for that team member. Now, you know, People get nervous about all commission salespeople. It's got to be the right person. You have to manage it the right way. In our case, it worked well. I'll give you another scenario. I had a salesperson that, again, was on a base plus a commission plus a quarterly bonus. And again, this guy was a rock star. And I was telling him like, man, I would love to move you to a more aggressive commission package because you can make way more money. And it will alleviate risk for the company. You've shown you're a professional. You can manage your book of business. I think that this is a win-win. And, you know, we went back and forth and back and forth about it. And this is, you know, this was someone I really looked at as, as someone that I was kind of mentoring. And at the end of the day, like we showed him how he was going to make, you know, a lot more money, like $10,000, $15,000 more a year. And he could even go, you know, a lot higher than that by, you know, pushing into the potential that we believed he had. And he just said, you know, Tim, I I just don't like it. I'm not comfortable with it. Uh, I'm not totally motivated by money. And this is what I would be comfortable with. And he threw a comp plan at me. There was a higher base. It was actually a higher base than even I was paid in the company and um, a lower commission. And I thought about it and said, yes. And the reason why Again, while I I like commission and and I like to motivate the behavior that I want to see, this this person 
from a personality perspective, was was different. He had different motivations. He was financially stable. He wasn't in a situation where like the big bonus check got him fired up. And so we decided to go the opposite way and honor that. Now, I, I told him, you know, man, I, I think you're leaving money on the table. And he said, I get that, but like, but I don't care. I'll let you know if I ever want to change it. And in his case, that was the right move. Now, I'll tell you, don't do either of those scenarios for a new salesperson. Each of these people had been in the team and I'd managed them for at least two years. With, with this second case, it was actually about four years. So there was experience. We knew what we had. My recommendation for new salespeople is that combination of base, commission, and a quarterly bonus. Great question. Okay, didn't mean to take that long on it. We got to keep moving here. Uh, oh man, okay. How should I design my showroom to make it easy? This is one that has been coming up a lot. I've been teaching this course. You may have seen it as I've been out on the road. It's called Designing the Perfect Showroom to Sell In. And and this is the core question, right? We're trying to make our showrooms easy. So how do I design my showroom to make it easy? This is the way I think you do it. Now, I'm going to give credit to my friend Kyle Titsworth out of Massachusetts. I was in Kyle's showroom and we were talking about this very concept. And... Kyle said, you know, this is actually, what you're talking about, Tim, is just like going to Target. When I go into Target, there's a big sign that says men's clothing. There's a big sign that says women's accessories, food, whatever. We want to do the same thing with our showroom. So my suggestion right away is that you put signage in your showroom for the situations your products apply to. So wherever your inserts are, put a big sign, like big, that says open fireplaces, with, with a big picture of an open fireplace. Now, maybe you add fuel types in there, open fireplaces, wood, gas, pellet, or maybe you have to have two signs because you separate your wood and your gas ones. You want a giant open fireplaces sign over your freestanding stoves. You want a giant freestanding stove sign over your zero clearance fireplaces. You want to have a giant sign that either says remodel slash new construction fireplaces or fireplace replacements. And there's a little bit of nuance on that that we can talk about in a future podcast episode. But some zero clearance fireplaces are primarily geared to go into new construction or remodel situations. And some are sized properly and are both a top and rear vent option where they're a great change out model, just like a gas insert. You pull the old fireplace out, put the new one in, put up some backer board and it's ready for finish. So by doing this with your showrooms, again, like barbecues, put a giant picture of a barbecue. When someone walks in the showroom, rather than staring at 50 black boxes, they look at this signage with a picture and they see, oh, open fireplace. That's what I have. And they walk towards it. They, you know, they look at the fireplace replacement section and maybe it's got a before and after where the first picture is of an ugly brass fireplace and then there's a transformation picture of how good it looks with a new model inside. New construction, remodel, pretty self-explanatory how to show that in, a, in a, you know, a, an image or a graphic. That will make it easy for people. When people walk in your showroom, I, I guarantee you right now they're confused by simply having that signage. Gosh, it makes it, it makes it easy. And that, that actually piggybacks really well into this next question, which has to do with pricing. How should you display pricing? And, and again, I, I believe in signage. I think that every showroom must be displaying pricing. And if you think about this, like 
out here on the West Coast, we have a lot of Starbucks. On the East Coast, they've got you know Dunkin' Donuts. And in the Midwest, they've got Caribou Coffee. I don't know. Oh, in Canada, they got Tim Hortons. So when you walk into any of those coffee shops, do they hide how much stuff costs or hide what differentiates the drinks? No, that'd be crazy. It'd be crazy if you walked into a coffee shop and there was no signage. They got big menu signs behind the barista or the cashier explaining the difference between the drinks, putting like drinks together, contrasting the difference between a small, a medium, and a large. And you want to do the same thing. Now, I believe that you want to do this with a giant sign that separates your fireplaces categorically. You know, I've talked for years with Grant Falco about how we want to arrange a good, better, best, and maybe a good, better, best luxury for the fireplaces that you have on display, the wood stoves and and everything else as well. But I got to tip my hat. There was a manufacturer that had the idea of putting this on a sign. And I saw that and was like, oh my gosh, we got to take that and run because it's a great idea. So what I would do is I would separate your products into a good, better, best. And I would create a menu sign that for each one, for your good fireplaces, for your better, for your best, you have a one sentence summary. So like in my old showroom or entry level good fireplaces, the one sentence summary was cost-effective fireplaces with a few basic options, right? That's a great reason to buy that good fireplace. Oh, they're cost-effective and you get a few basic options, right? Where our best, our tagline was premium look with the most design flexibility. Now on the sign, we would contrast differences between them. Like we'd contrast a moderate turndown rate versus a significant turndown rate or functional heat versus significant heat. But the crown jewel was having an average installed price on this. And we'd put a range. This is so powerful and it makes it incredibly easy for customers. So they can look at the sign, they can differentiate, oh, okay, this is why this model is less. This is why this model is more. And if, if you do that, you're going to win. I, I, I've, I've done that for years in my own showrooms. And uh, now that I get to help businesses, this is something that I'm seeing more and more. And again, like, it makes you the easiest option. And you can train to it. That's the biggest benefit is that when you display your pricing effectively, your bookkeeper could be out there talking with a customer and the customer could say, well, wait, why is this one more expensive than, than this? And the bookkeeper could literally look at the sign and go, oh, it turns down farther. Perfect. Like that's a great reason why it's more expensive. Or they could look at this and say, oh, this one's got, you know, one log set to choose from and this has five. Okay. That makes sense. More decorative options equals more dollars. Versus I was was secret shopping on the East Coast last week and I had someone tell me, you know, this is a Camry and this is a Lexus. And I asked what makes it a Lexus and they said the parts are more expensive. Now, I mean, I'm sure the parts are more expensive, but as a consumer, it's like, I don't care that the parts are more expensive. They look the same to me. You know, does it hold up better? Does it last longer? But, but instead it was because the salesperson was, you know, a little bit um, shell shocked by the question that was it. Versus when you have the signage, you can clearly say, oh, here's why this is more expensive. This is why this is a Lexus. This is why this is a Toyota Camry. It's powerful. So I hope that helps you. I I really believe in that. And again, it makes it easy to train and it makes it easy for customers to buy. Oh man. Okay. This is one uh, that's come up quite a bit. And and honestly, during our Firetime workshop, we heard this all the time. So our, our, our fire time workshop was three days long and basically in it, you know, we hit people with a lot. And after our second day, 
we took everybody out for a social night. We went bowling, we got some beverages and, and, you know, played billiards and we just hung out and just talked and, you know, it, it was a really fun time. But one of the most common things was, man, we opened up a lot today. Like, where do I even start? So the question is, how do I execute on all the different things I have in front of me? Anyone that is in a leadership, ownership, or management position is going to struggle with this because there are always competing priorities. You know, how do I execute on all the different things I have in front of me? And I would say the truth is you can't. You can't execute on all the different things in front of you. But the beauty is not everything in front of you is weighted the same as far as impact and priority. So, you know, my belief truly as a business, like, I mean, I don't think you can execute on more than four or five things as a business, like tops, tops, tops. I would say as a business owner, like you probably only have one to two things that you yourself are working on executing. You know, your service manager, you know, maybe one to two things, maybe a third if they're related, but you have to prioritize. So when we did the Firetime workshop, we talked about so much stuff. I mean, three days worth of content and people are taking notes in these like, you know, 30 page booklets about, about all the different things they're going to work on in their business. And literally like the last exercise of the workshop is you get to pick three out of everything we've talked about. You get to pick three things. What are the three and rank them in order of least important to most important. And we told them only execute on one, pick the one, execute on it, knock it out and then pick the next one and the next one. That's what I believe. You cannot execute on everything. And even as you listen to this podcast, you got to boil it down to the one thing. And then when you do that, you can go to the next one and the next one and the next one. But, you know, I was actually just, I was just talking about this uh, last week on the East Coast. My philosophy on a showroom is to show everything is to show nothing. I think the same thing is true in your business. To execute on everything is to execute on nothing. You know, you either, when you try to execute on everything, you either get analysis paralysis where you never start because, wait, what about this one? And, oh, well, this one's important too. What about this? What about this? Or you, you know, just halfway do it and you have an idea that's not fully formed. You're not focused on it because you're on to the next one and on to the next one and on to the next one. And that's not how you win, right? You execute slowly and diligently, completely, and then you move on to the next one. And it's a slow is fast mentality. It sucks. I hate it. But it's the best way to run a business. So it's a great question. And it's something that all of us struggle with. But as a, as a leader, I, I think that the most important part of your job is deciding what's most important and executing on it. That is the most important part of being a leader. You are the one that can decide what's most important. No one else in the company can. So you got to make that decision and you got to execute. And other fires will burn, but it's okay because they weren't the most important thing. So hope that helps you. That's that's my thought on how to execute when everything's in front of you. Prioritize, you know, delegate, give it to other people, but realize your scope is very limited. And you can only execute on one thing at a time. Okay, next question. This has to do with the 10-step execution process that you've heard us talk about on the podcast before. And again, this is one that comes up quite a bit. 
Uh, the question is, or I guess it's not a question, it's a statement. Um, <laughs> uh, I like the 10 steps, except I want to switch steps four and five. So in the 10-step execution process, step four is schedule the job. Step five is purchase the product. Now, again, you know, this person says, I, I, I like the 10 steps, but I want to switch four and five. I want to purchase the product before I schedule the job. And man, I will just tell you, no, don't do it. Resounding no, I will die on this hill. Do not do it. Schedule the job before you purchase the product. This is incredibly important. And I'm going to line out why. Now, it might sound crazy, right? Oh my gosh, lead times are four weeks or 16 weeks or eight weeks. We have no idea of knowing. So how can we schedule it? Customers are going to be furious when we miss the date. Okay, I get that. Here's the thing. I mean, it's really, really simple. If a customer comes in and they look at a $9,000 product and they drop 50% of it, 4,500 bucks, and the rest of it is due at the completion of the job. And you tell them, you know, we're not sure what ETAs are right now. It's really crazy. We'll call you as soon as it comes in and we'll get it scheduled. You know, you've told them, well, we don't know where the lead time is. It could be a couple of months. Guess what the customer's doing? They are sitting at their house and stewing. Every day that goes by, they're getting more and more nervous about, wait a minute, I've already given them 4,500 bucks. Is this thing going to come in? When is it going to come in? Maybe it's come in and they've forgotten about me. And you know what? They start to call you. And now you're playing defense. Oh, well, it's not in yet, but uh, we'll let you know as, as soon as it comes in or once we get a ship date for it. And they're calling you and calling you and calling you. And you know what? Their tension is escalating and escalating and escalating. And when your installers get out there, if one thing goes wrong, you are sunk. It's a powder keg. Versus if a customer places a deposit and you schedule within 24 hours to the best of your ability, you say, hey, Mrs. Smith, we've been seeing about a three-month lead time on these products, so we're going to schedule you an installation for this date. If anything changes with that, we're going to let you know. Your customer never calls you. Your customer does not have their tension elevated and elevated and elevated every single day because you've set the expectation. It's in the books. Now, as it gets closer, you can move that. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But I'm telling you, it changes the customer experience and it allows you to play offense, not defense. So here's the thing. If you schedule randomly, then of course you're going to get in trouble. But I will tell you, even in the midst of the craziest now, for 70% of your products, I would guarantee you can get an accurate lead time within two weeks. For 70% of your products, you know what you do? You make a list of those products with approximate lead time and you schedule based on that. And you tell your team, do not sell the 30%. That's what you say. Do not sell the 30%, right? I don't care if it's a porcelain enamel, cast iron pellet stove that they've just fallen in love with. If the ETA is next year, we don't sell it. If the ETA is, I don't know, we don't sell it. We tell the customer, man, I'd love to help you with that. But if I'm just being honest, we have no idea when production is going to start. This is what we have for you right now. You know, this is a very unique time period where time is more important than anything else. And so by you limiting your SKUs to what you have roughly accurate ETAs on, even that ETA is four months, six months. I mean, I don't like that, but that's fine. 
if it's a relatively accurate ETA, just schedule the installation date for two weeks after it's supposed to come in. Now, here's how you manage to it. Every single week, your scheduler, your purchaser, and your warehouse person need to get together and look at the upcoming schedule. Your first meeting is going to probably take you two hours because you're going to look at everything that's coming up on the schedule and look at it. Okay, do we have everything in? I'm not sure about this. Okay, you call this distributor. I'm going to call this manufacturer. Let's see what we have. Let's meet back here and talk about it. But after your first two-hour meeting, truly, these meetings will only take 30 minutes, maybe 45 minutes. Every week, you're looking at the upcoming schedule for the next four weeks, right? Okay, here's the jobs coming up. Do we need to move it? Eh, I don't feel good about this ETA. Yep, we're going to push it back. No, I feel great about this one. We're leaving it. Okay, when we push this one back, here's one that's already, we're going to pull it forward. Weekly meetings like this allow you to play offense. I mean, truly, this is how you maximize the schedule. When you wait for something to come in and then schedule it, I'm telling you, you're doing twice as much work because it comes in and you've forgotten about it. Wait a minute. What was this for? Okay. Wait, wait, so where does it go? Oh, you know what? But the front's missing. So, okay, just put it over here in the corner. We'll figure it out. Like it's so much better that you, that you schedule the job and every single week you're looking at the job. You've got a spot to stage things in the warehouse and you can simply look at it and say, you know what? I don't feel good. We're going to push it back. Now, when you call the customer, you're playing offense, right? You're calling a couple weeks ahead of time saying, Hey, Mr. Smith. Hey, Mrs. Smith. You know, we talked earlier about your installation coming up for this date. We're so sorry. There have been some product delays due to the pandemic and product shortages. And we are going to move this installation back three weeks to make sure we get the product in. People are used to having that phone call. You can deal with that graciously. You're giving them a couple of weeks to pivot. You're not calling the day before. You're calling a couple of weeks before. By doing that every single week, it will transform the efficiency of how you schedule and it will put you in the driver's seat to play offense. Okay, so I hope that that helps answer the question. I mean, really, I'll I'll die on that hill that, that Purchasing the product and waiting for it to come in before you schedule, it's literally twice as much work. It, it, it really is. And the customer is breathing down your neck. By setting that expectation first, you know, based on when you have a good understanding of the product coming in and then meeting every week to review the schedule, look ahead, push jobs out if you need to, pull things forward, it, it'll transform the efficiency of how you do your scheduling. The schedule is not fixed. The schedule is dynamic. I was talking to Mark Stoner about this, man, uh, a month or two ago. And, you know, this guy's running a major operation with a lot of trucks. And he said, Tim, all I care about is tomorrow's work. I don't care about the work two days from now. All I care about is tomorrow's work. Time's the enemy. Let's fill up tomorrow. So it's really powerful. We'll get back to our question and answer episode in just one minute. Hey, if you're listening to this and hearing all the questions thinking, what can I do for a comprehensive all in one playbook to help me run my business effectively, well, you've got to check out the online Firetime Workshop. This is something that we did as an in-person event in Seattle, Washington in the spring of 2022, and we filmed it. We broke it down into modules, and there's so much value you're going to get. You're going to get seven modules taking you all the way from a framework of personal leadership all the way through your showroom experience to your sales process, your paperwork process, your installation process. And I'm telling you, this is the framework that you need 
to make your business run effectively from start to finish. If you want to know how to execute the perfect job, it has to start with a documented framework, and that's what the 10 steps are. We will take you every step of the way, and there is loads of bonus content. You'll get workbooks, you'll get execution guides, you'll get checklists for all kinds of different aspects of your business. To take advantage of the online Firetime Workshop, go to itsfiretime.com slash workshop. That's itsfiretime.com slash workshop. Don't sleep on this, okay? Okay, next question. This is one that came from a Canadian dealer that actually me and Grant stopped by. And they asked if they needed to remove some of their displays to make seating areas. So when, when Grant and I do, you know, speaking engagements and, and go work with businesses, we, we say it hyperbolically when we're speaking, but but truly we recommend that most dealers remove 25% of their displays and create seating areas instead. And, and I mean, people flip out and I mean, I don't think sales reps like it very much, but, but that's the truth because most showrooms are overcrowded and, and, and good sales reps know that again, to show everything is to show nothing. When I'm focused on everything, I'm focused on nothing. And in my showroom, I got to let it breathe. I've been in showrooms that are just terrifying where it's like, they've got, you know, 65 pellet stoves on display. And every time a new one comes out, they just put it in front of last year's model. And we don't want to do that. So truly, I, I believe that, that almost every business that I've been to should have removed some of their displays to make room for seating areas. People are comfortable when they sit. People are confrontational when they stand up. You know, if you got your arms crossed and you're standing, you know, face to face with a person asking them questions, it's very antagonistic and very confrontational. If you take those same two people and you sit down at chairs so now you're shoulder to shoulder rather than face to face and you're both looking at the product. It's a collaborative environment and truly you will make so much more sales by removing displays and putting in working areas where you can sit and talk with customers and truly by you removing displays, you'll be more focused on what you have. You know, being being focused on a few products and a few lines is so much better than cherry picking everything and, and not making anyone happy. I mean, very often, I'm thinking about a couple product lines in particular now, very often you'll go into a store that sells a million things and the, the stories of some of the brands they sell directly undercut other brands they sell. So, you know, if you don't have a good space to sit down and talk with a customer about their project and understand what they need and you just show them everything, you very well might unsell the solution that they need because you didn't wait to understand their problem and and seating areas just create a really simple amazing space to understand people's problems if if you walk into a showroom and you're confused and someone says hey you know thanks for coming in you know as you can see we have a lot of different fireplaces and not every fireplace is going to work in in every given situation would you mind having a seat so i can ask you just a couple questions about your project i want to make sure that that I'm on the on the same page so that I, I can show you a, a few options that'd be a really good fit. You know, again, asking for them to sit down, offering them a bottle of water, coming out with a notepad. Do you mind if I take some notes while we talk? I just want to make sure I'm on the same page as you. These things build trust. So again, you know, you're welcome to email me some pictures of your showroom, but I, I will tell you that in general, I recommend people remove displays for seating areas and truly most showrooms, it's 25% 
of their displays. I mean, truly, I'm thinking about you know a, a situation that we were we were recently in where there was a lot of wood stoves, great brands, good wood stoves, but I mean they are you know piling up on top of each other. And I would say get rid of 25% of them. You you, you will make more sales with 25% less product. And seating areas are absolutely key. And actually, I, I got to give a shout out to Classic Stoves up in Canada. This isn't the retailer that we visited, but I, I, got, a, I got a picture from them the other day planning out their seating area after talking to me and Grant. So that, that was really special. Good job, guys. Okay, here's a question that doesn't come from a retailer. This is from a sales rep. And um, I'm going to protect the brand name that they're talking about. But essentially, they said as a rep, you know, how do I sell against brand X to win space for my fireplaces? And this is a great question. I actually, I I went through with a couple different distributors over me and Grant's recent travel. I I went through a couple courses where we literally dissected brand by brand based on on the products that you have. How would you go up against these lines? And I think it's all about positioning. So, you know, I mean, I, I'm not going to get brand specific here, but but what I'll say is if a dealer's got brand X on display and they love it, they are so pumped on it. Well, the last thing in the world that you want to do as a rep is tell them that there's something wrong with that brand, right? Because I mean, the dealers made up their mind. They love it. Like their reputation, their status, all this stuff is associated with it. So what you want to do instead is find out what does that brand do really well and where is that brand missing opportunity. So for instance, say that your retailer sells primarily a luxury gas insert line. Well, what you should do is you should try to find a more cost-effective line that has the same look, the same type of features, and the same story and talk to the dealer about, man, you crush it with this line. But I've been seeing in the market, there's a lot of folks making sales in this price range. So I think it'd make a lot of sense to take on this product, not the entire line, this product, or, you know, or, you know, in this case, uh, uh, like this, this series of of gas inserts, because this is going to tell the same story as what you're already doing, but it's going to, it's going to allow you to, to jump into a different weight class that, that right now, you know, people are just going to the competition for. I think that's a great way to do it. As a retailer, I would love to have that conversation. You know, I think I think another one is, you know, let's just say that a company uh, sells a line where pretty much their entire showroom is that line. A great angle would be it's really important to allow customers to shop in your showroom. And so outline a good, better, best. And If you're going to try and displace a product, don't displace an entire product line, displace a model or a series. So again, let's go to gas inserts and let's just say that that there's, there's there's a particular model that you want to win. You got to figure out where is it most comparable to a product that's already on display. After that, you got to figure out, does it fit into good, better, best, or luxury? Then you've got to nail down where your differences are. And an example of this is, let's say you break down a dealer's showroom into good, better, best. You can have a meeting with them and say, hey, you know, you do a great job with this Brand X manufacturer. You know, in looking at it, you've got a really natural, good, better, best going from this product to this product to this product. Now, I'm telling you, if you do this, no one has ever told a retailer this. And this is powerful. Like, they will listen to you. You can say, hey, I was noticing this. The difference between your better and best 
is very little. It looks like it's only about 400 bucks. And your difference between good and better is actually like 1700 What you might want to do is think about offering a product in your better range that's going to span that gap a little bit more evenly because right now things are getting really confused as we get towards best. And on top of this, we can make sure to get you the same type of features and a better margin than your current product. Now, that may or may not win the day, but that's a conversation that as a former retailer, I'm telling you, I will have that conversation all day long because it's making me aware of opportunities. It's making me think about my products in a different way and see where I'm either missing money, I'm leaving money on the table, or I'm not taking advantage of an opportunity. You know, in addition to that, I think it's really, really important. If I mean, if you've got better features at a better price point, like lead with that and talk about it. But you want to have a different story, right? Your good products need a story. Your better products need a story. Your best products need a story. And if you've got someone that sells a manufacturer with multiple tiers of products, but their lower two tiers or their upper two tiers really kind of overlap price-wise and don't have a distinctive story that's prime opportunity to displace one. And ironically, I think that that dealer will actually make more sales of the product that you're freeing up space-wise because they're not something that's competing with it and overlapping with it. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think retailers want to either A, uh, make money, or B, not lose money. And so presenting it in a, in a conversation that way about positioning, I think that that's how you do it. And you never badmouth and say, oh, that product is garbage. Because honestly, like that product is probably really good. The question is, does it fit positionally with what the retailer has going on and with the success you're seeing, you're seeing other retailers have in the marketplace? As a rep, you see the marketplace in a way that retailers don't, and that's powerful. So that's the angle that... Uh, that I would recommend. Also, again, just going back to this good, better, best, if you help a retailer make a good, better, best model for their wood stoves, for their gas fireplaces, for their inserts, man, that gives you credibility and you will you will win the opportunity to slide something in. So I, I love that. Um, you know, a final one is maybe with a retailer, you elevate their best up to luxury and you slide in with the best product or a better product. There's, there's kind of ways to do this, right? Good, better, best luxury. So I hope that helps you. And I know for me as a retailer, that's the way that I would want to be talked to rather than just told, oh, it's got a million features and, you know, man, you're going to make a great margin on this or, oh, your BTUs are so killer. You know, I I would want to have a positioning conversation. Okay. Couple more questions and we're going to get out of here. Uh, (laughs) This one's really easy. When are you going to host another workshop? This is a question we've got quite a bit because we just finished up our in-person workshop in Seattle. The, the answer right now is we don't know in 2023, Lord willing, we are going to host, I'm going to get myself in trouble. We're going to host three to four Lord willing in various parts of the country and we might try to host one in the Pacific Northwest and make it uh, an extra an extra long and, and kind of extra special event. But all of that said, what I would tell you to do right now is go check out the online Firetime Workshop. We literally filmed the entire thing. We chopped it up into modules. We gave you, you know, the same resources that folks got when they were at the in-person event. 
and it's it's fifteen hundred bucks. I'm I'm telling you, it's gonna be the best fifteen hundred bucks you've ever spent. Your your team can rally around it. I want to say this thing is like twelve hours long, and there's some bonus modules. There's an opening keynote. There's a there's a showroom rapid fire that's really cool as well, and um. Yeah, it's really, really good. And, and uh, again, I'll, I might get myself in trouble here, but I will tell you that that if you have uh, have purchased an online workshop and have not yet been to an in-person one, we will find a way to get you some credit towards that in-person one for the investment that you've made. So that is the deal on the workshops for next year. I'd imagine in the next month to two months, we will announce kind of when and, and where they're, they're going to be. Okay, final question. Uh, this is an awesome question that came from the Midwest. And the question was very, very long. And so I, uh, I kind of distilled it down into the key element, but essentially the question is how do I win the sale and not prime the pump for my competition? And you know, the example being, I'm really good at what I do and I really care for my customers. I show them pictures of before and after I talk with them. I try to make it really easy every step of the way. And consistently, people that I talk to and and I build great rapport with, I give them a great idea for the project. They go to my competition. My competition just rips me off and quotes it, right? So, so how do I stop that? How do I how do I earn the sale that that I started versus priming the pump for my competitor after I give the consumer this great idea? And they just take it to my competitor, and this wasn't even on their radar. But now they're like, oh, we can do the same thing. It's a great question, and it, it's uh, it's kind of a, a nuanced response that I have. But I, I think at the heart of it, it's that to succeed with customers and not have them shop against you, you need to explain the process. And this is what I mean by that. So very often with customers, when you you know you, you talk to them about the product, you you talk about how it solves their problem and you show them pictures and everything like that, a lot of the time, because you don't want to be pushy, it's easy to leave the next steps ambiguous and to say, okay, perfect. So let me know if you want to move ahead. Or so yeah, go home, talk about it with your husband or with your wife and give me a call if you have any questions about it. Those, those things don't, don't move a customer forward. In the sales process, step four is that we explain the process or we make a plan in the language of story brand. And a customer needs to know very clearly what is step one, what is step two, what is step three to solve my problem. And so what I would say is, you know, if you if you if you if customers are are leaving and going to your competitor, and many, many people will, you know, get a second bid, but if but if they're not choosing you I would say it's probably because it was easier to do business with someone else, unless there is a gross pricing discrepancy. And I mean like gross. If, if it's, I mean, if you're buying something for 7,000 bucks, you don't lose a sale for $500. You don't, you know, you, you may not even lose a sale for $1,000 if we've built the value the right way. And so what I would say you want to do is before the customer leaves the showroom, you want to say, Hey, you know, Joe or Susie, thanks a ton for, for spending this time. I, I think that this brand X product is, is going to be a, a great fit. So before you leave today, I, I'd like to explain the way that all of our jobs work. Because buying a fireplace can be kind of confusing. Here's the way that our jobs work. Step one, before you leave today, we'll write you up an estimate for the project. And that way you understand exactly what everything is going to cost. 
Step two, we'll send someone out to the house to take a look at it, and we're going to verify that there's nothing we missed in our conversation today. So that way you're taken care of and you know that, that your price is perfect going forward. Step three, we're going to get that installed in a timeline that makes sense for your schedule. Step one, step two, step three. Now again, okay, hey, step one, th- listen to this language. Before you leave today, we're going to write you up an estimate so that so that you understand exactly what this project is going to cost, right? So you're planting the seed. Before you leave, here's what we're going to do. We're going to write you up an estimate so that you understand what it will cost, not so that I can call you at 6 o'clock at night and try to get you to buy. It's, it's, a, it's a mentality of serving. Step two, we're going to send a team member out to your house to take a look at it. Now, maybe you do free in-home visits, maybe you don't. Let's assume you do it for free. You can say, we don't charge you anything for this, but we want to make sure there was nothing missed in our conversation today. If there's any changes, they will let you know before they leave the house. And then step three, we'll get that installed in a timeline that fits your schedule. What you've just done is you have just showed them how to succeed. You have said, if you do this and then you do this and then you do this, you're going to solve your problem. Now, when they go to a competitor to look, I now in my secret shopping, I've never seen anyone do this. I've had people say, oh, we'll go out to your house and take a look at it. But that is not step one, step two, step three, problem solved. That is, oh, wait, you want to come to my house and try to sell me something? Or they'll say, well, let's write you up an estimate. And, and as, as a customer, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm just here to look, just here to look. When you paint the picture as hey, it can be kind of confusing to buy a fireplace. I I just want to line out the steps of how all of our jobs work. Step one, before you leave today, and you go through that whole thing. Step two, step three. Now, you have to use that language, step one, step two, step three. Because listen to the difference. I know I'm going long on this, but listen to this difference, okay? If I just say, yeah, I'd like to explain the way that most of our jobs work. So before you leave today, we'll write you up an estimate for your fireplace. And we just want to make sure that you understand exactly what's going to cost and you have a good idea of it. Then we'll have someone come out to your house and, and we'll have Eric do this. He's been doing it for 20 years. He's really, really good. And basically, Eric's going to look things over and just make sure that, that we didn't miss anything in our conversation today. And if there's any changes to the, the pricing, he'll make you aware of it before he leaves. And then we'll make sure to get that ordered and installed in a timeline that matches your schedule. Now, I don't know about you, but like I got lost five seconds into that explanation because I don't understand how the pieces fit together. It's like a murky soup versus, hey, I'd like to explain the way that our jobs work. Step one, before you leave today, we'll write you up an estimate for the fireplace and that way you understand exactly what it'll cost. Step two, we'll send a team member out to your house to take a look at it. We're going to send Eric. He's been doing this for 20 years. He's really, really good. And we're going to make sure that nothing was missed. If there's any changes, we'll let you know what they are. And then step three, we'll get that installed for you in a timeline that works with your schedule. You hear that difference? Step one, step two, step three. And then you call the customer to action on step one. And then you call them to action on step two. And then when you're at the house, you call them to action on step three. If you don't call to action on every step of the way, you are just serving it up on a platter for your competition. Because again, you filled their head with knowledge and most customers would move ahead if they were called to action. So I think there's a way to do that that's gracious, that serves them and doesn't serve you. But that's what I would say is that, is that you want to make sure it solves their problem 
and you really want to explain the process. Step one, step two, step three, and then call to action on step one, and then call to action on step two. Wait till you get to the house and call to action on step three. If you can make it easier to buy from you than anyone else, people will absolutely do that. So these are amazing questions. And as always, man, I just feel like we're we're just getting started. So I hope that you got a ton of value out of it. I, I definitely have a few closing thoughts to share as we round out the conversation. Well, I hope you got value out of that question and answer episode. I absolutely love getting these questions and, and truly it is an honor that, you know, that people ask. So both Grant and myself are floored every time we get an email, every time someone calls us or pulls us aside when we're, you know, out and about traveling. So, so thank you. You know, uh, thinking about this, I, I, I think it really just comes back to, you know, how do we make it as easy as possible to buy from us? That's the question that we need to answer. And, you know, we're in a, we're in a very unique moment right now where products are getting easier and easier to buy, but we're in an industry where, in general, manufacturers are not making it easier to sell. And I think that this is something as an industry, like, we need to figure out how to make it easy for a consumer. We need to figure out how to reach them. We need to figure out how to communicate with them because that's where we win. So I, I think that as you can do this work in your showroom, man, it's powerful. And truly, like, and, and I don't mean to throw all manufacturers under the bus. There's plenty of great manufacturers and, and great sales reps. Find a sales rep that will partner with you on this. I mean, I, I, I know there are so many amazing reps that, that would love to have their dealers discuss positioning with them. Hey, where do our products fit? How can we help you take advantage of parts of the market that right now you're missing because your products overlap too much? All those sorts of things. So, you know, as we, as we round this series out, again, I'm just, I'm humbled at, at the opportunity that, that I get to host this podcast. And, and I, I, I tell people that I, I truly believe out of everything I have going on, I think that this is the most important part of my job right now. And uh, it's, it's an honor to do that. So thank you. Now, if you have questions that you want answered or we weren't able to get to your question in this episode, you can go to the website, itsfiretime.com slash about. Scroll all the way to the bottom and you could submit your question for us to answer in one of these Q&A episodes. So go to itsfiretime.com slash about. Now, I can't wait to see what the summer holds. As I said at the beginning of the episode, starting next week, we are going to be jumping into our rapid reactions where we play an audio article from the Firetime magazine and I listen to it in real time with you and I give you my rapid reaction as I listen and I take notes and and these are really, really fun. And I'm telling you, if you're not listening every month to the content from the Firetime magazine, you're missing out because it's incredible. You need to go subscribe to the Firetime magazine podcast. It's our sister podcast. Now, if this podcast has been a blessing for you and you want to support it financially, you can do that by going to the website patreon.com slash itsfiretime. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash itsfiretime. As we round out, you know, we've given a shout out to Napoleon before. Uh, They've been a manufacturer that really kind of from the shadows has very quietly supported the content that that this podcast is is doing you know whether or or not we talk about them and, and whether or not um it drives anybody towards them and it, and it means a lot that we're starting to see more companies say hey you know we need this industry to survive and we are willing to contribute 
to a resource that that helps protect it for everyone. So it, it really means a lot. Now, I'll talk to you guys again next week in the Rapid Reaction episode, but hey, summer's here. Make the most of it. This is invest season. Make the investment now and wait for payoff once the fall hits. So hope you have an amazing week. I'll talk to you again very soon. Thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast. To learn more, visit the website itsfiretime.com. Music from this episode was written and recorded by In Bloom out of Portland, Oregon. We thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. We'll see you next time. All in to burn it down.